0: Welcome to the Highland Sermon Podcast, where we share with you the sermons that are preached by the pastors at Highland Community Church in Cocado, Minnesota. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast so that you will be notified when new episodes are available. Let's get into this week's message.
1: Well, We want to talk this morning about our God who gets involved. Have you ever been in a situation where everybody sees the problem and everybody thinks, you know, somebody should do something about that? But it's awkward and uncomfortable, so nobody does anything about it. And you're like, will somebody please get involved? Can you think of a situation like that? Like you think of one of your friends, and you're like, will somebody please tell this guy, hey, dude, your, your, your flies down. Like somebody needs to let him know that. Or, or maybe you have a friend, and you just want to let her know. Love you to pieces, but that salad you ate for lunch, there's some of that just hanging around, and we can see it right About here. Or maybe some of you would say, you know, there's a person in my family. Maybe I've been to the YMCA and there's this person and they're in the shower and they think they're all by themselves. But I just want to tell them that that way they sang Taylor Swift karaoke style in the shower, everybody heard that. And our ears are still crying because of what we just heard. And will somebody say, something. We often wonder if anyone will have the courage to say what needs to be said. One of the greatest heroes in children's literature is the little boy from the tale The Emperor's New Clothes. He alone is the one who will state the obvious. Uh, The tailor was a trickster who swindled the emperor into believing that his birthday suit was the hottest new fashion trend. But this little boy was the only one in the whole kingdom who had the courage to look at the emperor parading around town and say, you don't have any clothes on. Exactly. There are times and occasions where someone needs to intervene. And that's where we find ourselves as we pick up the story in Isaiah chapter 59. Uh, God's people, the nation of Israel, have returned from exile in Babylon. They're living back in the promised land, but they still have Babylon hearts. We've said that in Isaiah 56 to 66, the third and final section of the book of Isaiah, there's two main groups of people that are discussed there are the servants of the servant, and there are the unchanged people. And Isaiah is talking now. About the unchanged people because very few of the people had been transformed by the Lord. They were still living according to the same patterns of life that got the people kicked out of the land in the first place. And here are these unchanged people and they're corrupt, they're unjust, they're wicked. And the question looms, will someone do something about this? And that's actually all the background we need to jump into the text. So let's go ahead and start with our first point, encompassing the first two verses we're going to be looking at this morning. And and the point is this, there's a problem that needs a solution. Listen to these two verses, verses 14 and 15. Uh, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice you know, If you were here last week, you remember that throughout chapter 59, Isaiah has been going back and forth, back and forth, from first person to second person to third person, and he continues that trend here again, going from first person in verses 9 to 13, where we saw the confession or the apology, back to third person, language of objective observation in these two verses. It's like the camera goes from a zoomed in, close-up view of the people and pulls back to show a panoramic view of the scene as a whole. And what it wants to show is an overview of the problem. Why is there chaos in the community? And the cause of the chaos is featured with four words in verse 14. And did you see the virtue words that Isaiah emphasized in that verse? What's noteworthy about these virtues is their absence among the people of God in the place where they were living. And here are the four words. There's no justice. What is justice? Justice is fair and equitable treatment of people. He says there's no righteousness. Living in line with moral principles, probably the people who are living in that Old Testament era, would mean living in line with the law that God had revealed to his people in the Old Testament. So there's no justice. There's no righteousness. And then it says this, and I find it interesting. Truth stumbled. Truth stumbled. There's no truth. Truth is personified. Truth isn't a person that walks around stumbling, but it's pictured as a person who walks around stumbling here in this passage. There is no truth. I find it interesting that the people of God are expected to behave and live differently than the people who don't know God. So here God is speaking to his people, and he's saying, I had an expectation that there would be justice. I had an expectation that there would be righteousness. I had an expectation that there would be truth. I find it interesting that even in our own community, there are people who name the name of Jesus that aren't living in line with the standards of truth that I think should be evident among all Christ followers. Let me give you an example of that. Yesterday, I saw something on social media that kind of made me pause and say, hmm... Uh, several large parachurch organizations, and I'm not going to call them out by name, but you can go home and, and, and look it up. There's, there's been this new trend among parachurch organizations to file with the IRS that they are churches. Because if you file as a church and become known by the IRS as a church, you can get special tax status. And so these organizations that do really good things for the Christian community, such as uh, helping families navigate media and other things, such as lobbying in Washington, D.C. for Christian causes, these are good organizations, but they're filing and they're saying we're churches. And so I texted my mom yesterday, and I named one of these organizations in particular, one she's donated money to for several years. And I said, hey, mom, do you think this organization is a church? And she said, of course not. They don't have a pastor. They don't do baptism. They don't have services. Like, they do things for Christians, but they're not a church. And, 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 and I said, would it surprise you to know that they're telling the IRS they're a church? And she's like, why would they do that? And, and, and I said, because they want the tax status. She said, oh, everybody cheats on their taxes. If Christians need to do that, I guess. And I, whoa, 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 whoa. Shouldn't there be an expectation that Christians are truth people? And 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 here's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, I'm looking around at God's people where the expectation is that they should be justice people, they should be righteous people, they should be truth people, and there are none of those things. He said there's no uprightness to be found. That was the fourth virtue that was missing. Uprightness is dignified, honorable conduct. And Isaiah says, here's the verdict about these virtues in this society. Not here, not among these people, not now, not in this place. Why not? Because they were too busy living their own way. How bad were things? Verse 15 tells us. Did you see it in the text? He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Here's what that means. It means that there are some people who saw how bad things were getting and like, you know what? We want to opt out of the evil that's happening in our world. Like, we're not going to participate in the wicked evil games. And Isaiah says, if you try and opt out of the evil wicked games, the people will just play the wicked evil games on you, and you will be... Pray. If you don't play according to the wicked rules, things won't go well for you. You know where that shows up in our society? Reality television. Like, do you have a reality show you like to watch where they vote people off? And so, whether the people are living on an island or living in a house, um, they, they bring together this group of strangers. And the strangers quickly become friends, but every week they have to kick somebody out. And so the whole goal of the game is to convince your new friends that you're not trying to get them kicked out when you really are trying to get them kicked out. And so we have this wonderful thing called the blind side. And the blind side is where somebody thinks things are going really well, but things aren't really going well for them at all, and they're about to get booted out of the game. But imagine if, you are living in a society, and this is the society Isaiah was writing to, where they were living by survivor rules, but they weren't playing the game of survivor. Everybody is just blindsiding and backstabbing and betraying each other. And if you try not to play the game, the game's going to get played on you. And Isaiah says, That's the situation. There is no justice, there's just dirty, immoral people that are far from the heart of God. Then we get this interesting note. Did you see it in verse 15, God's thoughts on the situation? Like, what does God think about what's going on here? Well, it says, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him. Now, when we use the word displeased, I don't think it conveys the magnitude of the displeasure that God felt in this situation. Like, we tend to use the word displeased to mean something like this. It displeased me that I forgot to check the oven and the cookies were left in too long and the bottom of the cookies are burned. That's a displeasurable experience. No, 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 no. God's more like in this passage, I'm so displeased that I'm going to put on my armor and show up in town as a military fighter. That's a different level of displeasure. God saw it. It was displeasing to him. There was a problem that needs a solution. In fact, this leads us to our second main point which is this since there needs to be a solution the Lord himself becomes the solution let's focus in just on verse 16 God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him Uh, God observes that no one is stepping up to solve the situation now, this is one way that we can read the entire Old Testament. There's a problem that needs solved. Somebody needs to be the solution. Who is going to be that solution? Here's how we can read the Old Testament that way. Way back in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God made a promise to them in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And the promise was, there will come a seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. There will come someone who will take all that is wrong and make it right. Now, if you were reading the Old Testament for the first time without the benefit of knowing how the story ends or where the story is going, imagine how you would read the Old Testament. Every time a new character shows up on the, sc- on the scene, you would be asking the question, is this the one? Is this offspring of human parents, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent? And imagine how you would ask that question about each person that came along. In fact, let's just ask that question about some of the major characters in the Old Testament. The first kind of major character that comes along is Noah. And you would be saying, is Noah the one? I mean, he actually saved people on the ark. Is he the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent, and then Noah gets off the ark? And what does he do? He goes and gets drunk. Well, probably not him. And then Abraham comes along and God says, leave your people, leave your land, go to the promised land I'm going to show you. I'm going to make a people for you. I'm going to make a great name for you. I'm going to bless you. And you're like, he's got to be the one. And then as he's traveling around, he runs into some kings who are like, your wife's kind of hot. And he's like, oh, that's not my wife. It's my sister. Because he's so scared that the king's going to kill him to get to his wife that he just kind of pawns his wife off on the king saying that Sarah's his sister. And And he does it twice. So it's probably not him. How about Abraham's grandson Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, like the whole nation got named after this dude. Is he the one? No, can't be him. He was a shuckster and a schemer and a deceiver. And then Moses comes on the scene and leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And certainly the man in charge of the most climactic event in all of God's people's history would be the one you would think, right? And then Moses throws a temper tantrum in the desert. And God tells him to talk to a rock, and he hits the rock with his staff instead. And it can't be him. And then the people are in the promised land, and they're in the era of the judges, and other nations keep coming in and kind of oppressing them. And and a guy shows up one of the judges named Samson and he's about the strongest person who's ever existed in Israelite history and you're thinking okay it's got to be this buff strong guy right well Samson had what we're going to call a female problem so it wasn't really him and then how about David and David shows up on the scene and he's the greatest king in all of Israel's history David also had a female problem, and he tried to resolve his female problem with murder. So it can't be him either, can it? And on and on it goes through the pages of Scripture. and We think it's got to be this one, but it can't be this one. It should be this one, but it's not that one. Why? Why? Because each of these people showed that they themselves needed someone to break the power of sin in their own lives because they succumbed to the power of sin And each one of these men also needed a Savior. They needed someone without sin to defeat sin. And who would come that could conquer the sin problem and drive out sin once and for all? I think verse 16 is really interesting because it says, The Lord saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Now, wonder doesn't mean, hmm, perhaps it could be this one. Maybe it's that one. No, no, no. God is all-knowing, so... There's no way that he couldn't not know what was happening. But, but, there's a key word that changes everything. God's wondering is exasperation. God's wondering is, seriously, how are they all so messed up? Seriously, what's going on? And then this key word in verse 16 changes everything. Do you see it? God wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then, then what Since there's no one else to do it, God does it himself. His own arm brought salvation. According to Old Testament scholar Andrew Abernathy, God's arm is a common metaphor for conveying his powerful action in human history. There was no one else to do it, so God did it himself. It's intervention language. It's exodus language. Listen to how the Old Testament talks about the arm of the Lord and what it has done powerfully in the past. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6 tells us this. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Listen to how the text continues. And I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. It was God's arm that acted to rescue his people. Psalm chapter 98, verse 1, looks back on the acts of God, speaking of the arm of God, and says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. One belief about God that was common among the founding fathers of America was a belief system called deism. And the idea of deism is this, that God began the world, but then God stepped away from the world and just kind of let the world unfold however it was going to unfold. Uh, The illustration they used for this is that God was like a watchmaker who designed the watch, who cranked the watch and started letting it tick, but then he walked away and just let it tick on its own. And when something went wrong with the watch, God wasn't there to fix the watch. And aren't you so glad that the Bible doesn't teach deism? See, we don't have a God who observes the world from a distance. We have a God who is actively involved with the creation he made. When there was no one to intercede, God himself interceded. Our God does not stand apart from history and above history. Our God entered history to change history. So how does God enter history? How does God show his holy arm? How does God become the salvation that people need? The rest of the chapter lays this out for us and shows us three ways that God intervenes in history. And here's the first way that God intervenes in history. He fights to vindicate victims of injustice. Military language is going to show up in these verses. Verse 17 is preparation, God putting on his armor to go to battle. Verse 18 shows how God battles his enemies, But if we're going to talk about why God goes to battle, we need to talk about who God is battling, and that calls us back to verse 15 that we've already looked at. What got God so angry? It was the injustice that he observed. There was no justice, so God got involved. God was fighting for the victims of injustice in society. And all throughout human history, society has a way of using people and throwing them away, oppressing people for the benefit of others. It's still happening in our world. Did you know that right now in Congo, in Africa, there's 225,000 people who are working in mines collecting cobalt that's used to make batteries to power electric cars? What's so tragic about this is that among the 225,000 people working in the mines in the Congo, 40,000 of them are children. Some of them documented as young as six years old. And our luxury is powered by the oppression of these precious little children. We live in a world where blood diamonds are sold in Africa to fund insurgencies. Even in the history of our own nation, There was some discussion last week on the internet about Monticello, the place where Thomas Jefferson lived. And someone who visited the place where Thomas Jefferson lived asked the question, why do the tour guides talk so much about the slaves that Thomas Jefferson owned? Well, potentially, here's why. Did you know that our third president was in the top 0.1% of slave owners in the history of the United States? Did you know that when he died, 90% of his net worth came From the sale of human beings. Did you know that over 600 people were enslaved on his plantation? And when he died, 200 of them were sold, sent to all different corners of the New World, ripping apart friends and family. And we have a God who heard the cries of the slaves. We have a God who hears the cries of the children who are being forced into labor in the mines. We have a God who hears the cries of all of those who would oppress others. Why? Because those who oppress the people God has created are actually decreating God's world. And God is on a mission of recreating, making into new creation his world. And those who decreate can have no place in the world that God recreates because God is on a mission to drive away all evil. God is on a mission to drive away all injustice. God is on a mission to drive away all suffering. And those who perpetuate evil and injustice and suffering can have no place in the world that God is remaking because he comes to make all things new and he comes to make all things right. And this is part of the salvation that he comes to bring. And so the question is this, where is the place for those who oppose the plan of God to recreate his world? And the answer is clear, they have no place. God will drive them away. That's why God suits up for battle, because he is going to war against his enemies. And his enemies are those who perpetuate that which is against his character those who perpetuate evil and suffering and injustice. Do you see the clothing that God is putting on? He's putting on zeal as a cloak. Now, this is an important word in the Bible. It's an important word because it brings together two roles in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, their first role is, Is the role of the suffering servant, and we saw that culminating in chapter 53, where the suffering servant took the sins of the people as his own and went to the cross to kill those sins. But now, here in chapter 59, we see a divine warrior showing up on the screen uh, on the scene to deal with injustice, and so. We have a suffering servant, we have a divine warrior, but this word zeal actually ties both of those roles together in one person. John chapter 2, verse 19, is the linking verse that shows this to us. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus had shown up on the scene and they asked him as he was cleansing the temple, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And his disciples remembered that it was written in the scriptures, zeal for your house will consume me. The suffering servant who went to the cross and cleansed the temple in his final week became the divine warrior. It was one person, Jesus Christ and you saw the armor he put on. We read about it in verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. And you might be saying, those sound like familiar terms. I've heard those before in the Bible. Well, Paul picks up on those terms and talks about them in Ephesians chapter 6. And listen to what Paul says when he tells Christians to put on the armor of God. Stand, therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the the breastplate of righteousness. And verse 17 continues, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The people of the divine warrior who belong to Jesus Christ wear the armor of the divine warrior so we can fight like him and win victories for him. But Paul clarifies that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our righteousness in an unrighteous world is Our victory we love when others hate. We're content with Jesus in a world of greed. We need not hurt others to obtain power, prestige, or position because we already have the best position imaginable. We are seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places with his righteousness being what we wear as our own. So we go to war sharing the gospel of Jesus. Why? Why? Because every place that oppression is, the gospel wants to drive it out. See, here's what happened. God created the world, but sin began claiming territory. And sin said, I'm going to take this city. I'm going to take this nation. I'm going to take this people group. I'm going to take this community. And over and over and over, sin Drove out the light and darkness came to be where light should be. And we sang about it this morning. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel that there's darkness? We do. But there's a hope that one day light will come breaking through. And how does that happen? It happens when the people of God put on the armor of God to share the gospel of God. And we go around winning victories for God. When we share the gospel with someone, sin and oppression gets driven out of their hearts and light comes in in its place and we begin reclaiming as men and women and children come to faith in Jesus Christ. We reclaim this territory. We reclaim this community. We reclaim this nation. Why? Because they hope in God instead of hoping in the lies of sin to bring fulfillment and the gospel changes everything. There's not a corner of the world that the gospel won't reach. Do you see what it says in verse 18? God will deal with the sin in his own people. He'll also deal with the sins in the coastlands, those are considered the farthest points on the globe. In fact, it continues. God fights to vindicate victims of injustice. He also fights to magnify his glory. Look at verse 19, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Okay, so it talks about two places. It talks about the west and it talks about the place where the sun rises. A quick question for you. Where does the sun rise? The sun rises in the? Good, good. So you've got the west and you've got the east. I'm going to give you a little vocabulary word because some of you are like, I missed this in English class. There's a figure of speech called a merism, And a merism is a figure of speech that indicates complete totality. And that's what Isaiah is using here in this passage because he's saying, from the east to the west, there's no place where the glory of, the, uh, where the glory of God will not be revealed. See, think about it. If you start walking west, you will never come to a place where you can no longer walk west. If you start walking to the east, you will never come to a place where you can no longer proceed to the east. Why? Because there is no place on this planet where God's glory will not fill the earth as the water covers the sea. There is no place where God's glory will not one day be known. And God's intervention is, is coming, and God's intervention is pictured like a rushing stream. In Hebrew, this is a narrow river, and so you picture this water that's pent up, and all of a sudden it gets released. This happened in Sacramento, California on July uh, 10th. There was a river there that flooded, and those who were studying the flood of this river said that the river was flooding so fast that water was rushing at a rate of 4,500 cubic feet per second. And so you can see a picture on the screen that shows what happens when the rushing water takes over. It comes like a flood. I think the point is this. The wait for God's intervention seems torturously slow. But when God's intervention happens, it happens in a moment just like that. And how many of you are waiting for God to intervene in a situation in your life? And God, I'm dealing with this issue. I'm dealing with this health crisis. I'm dealing with this family drama. I'm dealing with this horrible work situation. God, when will you come along and fix this thing I'm dealing with? And God says, it seems like it's taking a while, but when I come, it will come like a flood. Do you see what it says? The wind of the Lord drives this rushing stream. It's interesting the Hebrew word used there for wind. The Hebrew word is ruach. And the Hebrew word ruach actually has two different meanings. And I think Isaiah is playing on the double meaning here in this passage. Because the word ruach, which can be translated wind, can also be translated spirit, as in Holy Spirit of God. And so I believe that what the wind does negatively, the Spirit of God is doing positively Because God intervenes in two different ways. When God comes in judgment, it's like a wind that sweeps away the unrighteousness and the ungodliness and the suffering and the oppression that's in the world. Like being caught in a tornado or a hurricane, so is it like to be caught in the wind of God's judgment. But for the people who repent and come to the Lord, they can be spared the judgment of God and the Holy Spirit rushes upon them just like a wind. And they're changed in a moment because they're transformed. Evil hearts made into pure hearts. And that leads us to our third and final point. God fights to vindicate victims of injustice. He fights to magnify his glory. And he fights to establish new creation people. Listen to these final two verses. Starting in verse 20, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. A couple things I want you to notice. The first thing is that there's a covenant being established. A covenant is an agreement, a relationship establishing agreement between God and people. And God says, though you have broken The agreement that established a relationship between us because of your sin, I'm going to make a new covenant that will restore the relationship that has been broken. But notice the shift. He plays with that first person, second person, third person language one more time here in this passage. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. Do you see how he makes it personal? The question is not is there a covenant available? for us to have a relationship with God. The question is, are you part of the covenant that allows us to have a relationship with God? Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord? And I want you to see how this covenant is enacted, how this covenant is described, and how this covenant is fulfilled throughout the pages of scripture. So three references I wanna take you to. And the first one is at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter six, the Lord talks about how he's going to make Isaiah part of the people who can speak the words of the covenant, starting in, in verse 5. First four verses of Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah gets a glimpse of God in, 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 in the heavenly temple. And Isaiah responds to seeing the holiness and purity of God by saying, woe is me. For I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How can I speak for God? My lips are corrupted because of all the lies, all the harsh things, all the vulgar things that have come out of my lips. My lips are unclean. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, that's an angel, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God took a man of unclean lips and made him a man of clean lips because God himself brought about the purification that was needed. And so the one who could speak nothing, the was not vile, could now speak only words of hope. And the rest of the book of Isaiah was Isaiah speaking gospel words to the people in preview form. And what was he previewing? What was he previewing? He was previewing the new covenant. See, it's interesting, I believe, that verse 21 that we looked at when it says, my spirit that is upon you, was first speaking about Isaiah and by extension speaking about us. My spirit is upon you and my words I have put in your mouth. Shall not depart out of your mouth. God cleaned Isaiah's lips so Isaiah could speak the truth of God. And what was this new covenant truth that he was speaking? I think the prophet Jeremiah gives us the best description of that. Jeremiah chapter 31. Here's what Jeremiah writes in verses 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. What a powerful promise that is. He says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How does God make a new covenant people? He gets involved. He intervenes. He cleans them up. When God's people couldn't get clean on their own, God comes and cleans them up because he loves them. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your wicked heart that loves sin, and I'm going to take it out, and I'm going to kill it on the cross with Jesus Christ. And in place of that old wicked heart, I'm going to give you a new heart, and that new heart won't have to get taught because it will intrinsically know the Lord, because you get Jesus' heart transplanted into your heart when you become part of the people of God. That's what we mean when we talk about becoming a Christian. When we say, Jesus, I don't want to live for myself anymore, but I want to be identified as a person who belongs to Jesus Christ. So the words of that covenant get put in the mouth of the prophet and then into the mouth of God's people, And that's fulfilled in the New Testament. When Peter begins preaching on the day of Pentecost, 40 days after Jesus went to heaven, Peter stood up in the middle of the city of Jerusalem and he began preaching a public sermon. And at the end of this public sermon, he said this, and I think this is so powerful, and you'll see exactly how this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 59. He says, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What did it say here? It shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your children, your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's children, their offspring. Do you see the fulfillment happening on the day of Pentecost? And then verse 40 of Acts chapter 2 says, With many other words, Peter exhorted them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Come out of this place of unchanged, wicked people who perpetuate oppression and injustice and come to the place of righteousness because when you do, you will be remade into the people of God. When you do, you will be restored into everything God originally intended you to be. And the promise endures through the generations. So here's the question as we close. How do you need God to get involved in your life? The God who gets involved to bring salvation. There's three ways that I think you might need God to get involved for you. The first thing is you might need God to be your hope of vindication in a time of suffering. Maybe you're going through a situation and you're like, God, there's something really hard happening in my life and I need you to make it right. God, will you make it right? And the hope that Isaiah tells us is that we have a God who will not leave things undone. He will not leave things in destruction and despair. And maybe you've got a situation, and there's somebody who's just been really hurtful in your life, and you've been praying about it, you've been praying about it, you've you've been praying about it, and I don't know when, but what I can tell you is this. There will come a day, whether it's in this life or whether it's in eternity, where God will see the rightness of your cause if you belong to him, and he will vindicate you as a son or daughter of the king and you can trust him, that our God is an injustice-changing God. Maybe you need God to show up because you need an opportunity to repent from unjust living that deserves punishment. Maybe you would say, you know what, I'm looking at my own life, and I'm more perpetrator than I am victim. I'm more oppressor than oppressed. I'm more one who's been doing my own thing instead of doing God's thing, and The beauty of the gospel is this. There is always hope to be saved from the judgment of God by becoming part of the people of God. And we can look to the cross at any moment to be saved, to be changed, to be remade and say, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. Take my sin, do away with it on the cross and give me that new covenant heart that loves you, that wants to know you. Give, that, give, give, give me that new birth, that new life. If you do that even now in this moment, the Holy Spirit will flood into your life and transform you. And lastly, maybe you need God to get involved by giving words of life to flow through you, that your mouth will be used to speak gospel truth to others. Maybe there's a face or a name popping into your mind right now, and you'd say, this person, This person I work with, this member of my family, this man, this woman, they need to know about Jesus. And I need to be that conduit of salvation. I need to be the one to speak these words of life. And the Lord can give you the words to say in the moment because the cross changes everything. Friends, we share how God acted in the past because we have a God who got involved.
0: Thank you for listening to the Highland Sermon Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Highland Community Church, please feel free to visit our website, www.highlandchurchmn.com. Our website link is also available in the show notes of today's episode, along with links to our social media pages. Thank you for listening, and always remember this, you are loved.